Good morning, church. Join me in prayer as we come around God's Word. We'll be looking at James uh, 4 uh, in a moment, but uh, let's, uh, let's pray. God, we thank you for um, our time that we just had in remembrance of you. God, there's never a time where to exit the gospel, leave the gospel behind, and go on to other things. Everything that is in your word is all about the gospel. So we look at this passage this morning in James. It is about the gospel. So help us to embrace it, to live it, to continue in that place of remembering what it is that Jesus Christ did for us. So we come to you this morning knowing that, with that foundation, and ask, Lord, feed us. Feed us from your word. As we look to you for our daily bread, we look to you for sustenance spiritually. And so, God, may you feed us this morning from your word, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Back several decades ago now, Ruth Berender and her associates carried out an interesting experiment with children designed to show how a person handled peer pressure. The experiment was simple. They brought 10 adolescents into a room and and told them that they were going to study their perception of how well they could see. And to test this ability, they planned to hold up cards on which three lines were drawn. The lines were marked A, B, and C, and were of three different lengths. The students were then instructed to raise their hands when the teacher pointed to the longest line. The instructions were simple. They were repeated. Raise your hand when we point to the longest line. Well, what one student didn't know, however, was that the other nine had been brought in early and told to vote for the second longest line. The purpose was to test the effect of group pressure on the lonely individual. The teacher then showed the ten teenagers the first card with three lines of different lengths, and the nine informed teenagers voted for the second longest line, letter B. And when the nine teenagers voted for the wrong line, the lonely, uninformed individual would typically kind of glance around the room and frown in confusion, then slip his or her hand up with the group. Instructions were repeated, and the next card was raised. And time after time, the self-conscious, uninformed student would sit there saying that the short line is longer than the long line simply because he or she lacked the courage to challenge or go against the rest of the group. And this remarkable conformity occurred in about 75% of the cases and was true of small children and high school students. Berenda concluded that some people would rather be president than be right, which is certainly an accurate assessment. Aren't we all surrounded by a majority that says the next to the longest line is really the longest line? 
Have we, have we buckled to the pressure of the world to call the shorter line longer than the obviously longer line? And I'm not just referring to young people here. You see, rather than adhering to the moral and ethical lines drawn by God, the church at large today has tolerated moral and ethical lines redefined by the world's. And it's found its way, church, into our worldview, into our lifestyle, so that we are not only in the world, but of the world. D.L. Moody aptly put it this way. He said, the place for the ship is in the sea. But God help the ship if the sea gets into it. Church, are we neck deep in the sea? Have we caved into the pervasive influence of our culture? Have we, have we been pressured to embrace a lie? Well, Pastor James here addresses that very issue in the section we're looking at today in the book of James. And so if you're not there, I invite you to turn with me to James chapter 4. It's in the New Testament. It's toward the back of your Bibles if you're using the Bible. Otherwise, you can go on your app and there it is for you. Magically, it appears. But in James chapter 4, it continues in our study that we've been looking at since September along the theme of faith and action. James has been quite pointed about a show-me faith, right? That faith alone saves, but a faith that saves is never alone. There'll be something to show for it. There should be something distinguishable between a follower of Jesus and one who is not. I mean, can we receive Christ without forsaking the world? Many believe they can. Yet in the section we looked at last week, a very uncomfortable passage. James, in no uncertain terms, look with me at James 4, verse 4. He says, you adulterous people, you adulteresses, don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred toward God? Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. You see, worldliness distances us from God. And the further the distance, the greater chance of error. A few weeks ago, we had a, a cornhole tournament over at the gym. I mean, it was a blast. And when I first arrived, some cornhole boards were set up, and so I, I picked up some bean bags and I began tossing them onto the board. And, and I, was, I was doing okay. I was getting it on the board most of the time. But, but then the ones in charge did something really mean. They moved the boards further away from each other, uh, really closer to regulation. And I found that as I tossed those bean bags, I, I wasn't doing as well. Some would hit the board, most would miss. See, there was greater distance, and error increased. And since my mind is always working on illustrations looking for a sermon, I liken that to our spiritual lives. The greater the distance, error increases. That's, that's really our bottom line for this morning. If you, if you don't take anything else, at least grab this. The greater the distance, error increases. Further you get away from God, the more sin you're inviting in. 
And so James offers us the cure, the remedy for dealing with that distance. He gives us more grace. James said that back in verse 6. God opposes the proud. He gives grace to the humble. You see, God's grace is accessible and available. It is closer than you think. Well, what must we do to swim in the sea of God's abundant grace? Well, in James chapter 4, verses 7 through 10, in rapid fire, James piles one command on top of another to call us out of friendship with the world, and that distance thing that has happened, into the path of God's grace. Now, these, this section here in 7 through 10, because there's 10 commands, they've been called the Ten Commandments of James. Each one demands our attention and action. There's 10 of them here. And I just knew you'd be excited about a 10-point sermon. (laughs) No, instead, I'm going to give you some phrases that capture the essence of what James is saying here. If I ever tried to do a 10, you'd be counting them. We're on six. It's this time we're in trouble. I wouldn't do that to you or me. I want to capture it with some phrases. First of all, submit and resist. Submit and resist. Our first phrase this morning, submit and resist. God says to us through Pastor James, verse 7, look with me, James 4, verse 7. Submit yourselves then to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Now, staying true to our context, these words come to us after James says, God gives grace to the humble. And at the end of the section we're looking at this morning in verse 10, it says, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. So the way to reduce the distance is always through the door of humility. And so with the bookends of humility here, verse 6 and then verse 10, James lets us in on what that humility looks like. And the very first word in verse 7 is submit, submit. Doesn't that word just kind of make you cringe? I don't submit to anyone. We want to be, our, our, we want to be boss. Our own boss and sometimes everyone else's. There was an office manager who was complaining in their staff meeting that he wasn't getting enough respect. And so the very next day, he attached a small sign to his office door that said, I'm the boss. I'm the boss. Well, later that day, he returned from lunch to find that somebody had placed a note over his sign, and it read, your wife called. She wants her sign back. (laughs) That kind of puts it in perspective. It's always someone else that has just a little bit more over on us. And yet, we're bombarded in this world with messages that tell us, you must assert yourself. Stand up for yourself. Fight for your rights. Not suggesting There's no place for any of that. Just be careful that it doesn't stand in opposition to what God requires, that our thinking doesn't sound more like the world than God. Because submission's not popular. I doubt there are many seminars and classes out there entitled, How to Submit. And if there were, I'm sure people are just flocking to it, right? Because we live in a self-oriented, self-sufficient self-governed culture. And you can't tell me what to do. And sadly, that mindset has found its way into the church. The sea is in the ship. And yet the pathway to God's grace begins with submission to God. 
It's a command. And submit means to line up uh, under the authority of another. It's to do that willingly. It's to arrange or to place ourselves under someone else. To submit to God then is to recognize that God is, is supreme. He's, he he is, is supreme in my life. You see, humility and, and submitting to God go hand in hand. Alistair Begg said it this way. He says, submission to God is the outworking of a truly humble heart. Are you willing to submit to God? Or are you digging in your heels? Will you dare to ask God this question, Lord, in what area of my life do I need to be submitting to you? Submit yourselves to God. Then that's followed with the words, resist the devil. Resist the devil. Shift your energy from resisting God to resisting the devil. And the word for resist here uh, means simply to stand against, as you would expect. That's what it means, to stand against. The idea is aligning ourselves against something, someone perhaps, but something. And the, and the thought is a sustained resistance. It's, it's, in other words, it's not a one-time thing. I just resist, he flees, I'm good. Not what it means. Sustained resistance is the idea of this word here. Now, we resist the devil... And he will what? What does it say? He resists the devil and he will flee from you. Why would the devil ever flee from us? The order of these two commands, submit and resist, is relevant. We must submit to God first before we can ever think about resisting the devil. Why does the devil flee from us? Get this. Why does the devil flee from us? Because if we have first submitted to God, he flees from the God in us, not us. So taking our stand against the devil requires that we submit to God. And if we're submitting to God, then the devil has, if we aren't submitting to God, the devil has no reason to flee. We must do the submitting first. And you know, some are trying to fight the devil without living a God-centered life. Now, I don't want to spend a lot of time here, but it's worthy to touch on because it kind of comes up in our passages. There, 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 there is a lot of hocus-pocus teaching on dealing with Satan that has only led to confusion. Books have been written. Seminars and workshops have been conducted outlining numerous steps to overcoming Satan's power in your life. Books such as Neil Anderson's Bondage Breaker and Victory Over Darkness were extremely popular in the 90s, but its effects have lingered into the 21st century. Still today, spiritual warfare training in which you can learn certain formulas and prayers and techniques are being promoted as the way to go if we are to successfully do battle with Satan. James gives us one simple step. Resist the devil. Why have we added, uh, some, added all these, this craziness and superstitions and sensualism to this matter of resist? Listen, we can't handle them on our own. Don't try and take them on when your own weapons and become obsessed with him. Don't deny his existence either. Then he still gets the victory. But do as we're commanded here, church. Resist him. 
Resist him. Stand in opposition to him and he will have to leave. Oh, he'll return again, but resist him again and again and again. Resist. Show me in scripture where we are commanded to rebuke the devil. Show me. Where in scripture are we instructed to chant certain phrases or to pursue Satan in some kind of uh, spiritual combat? Show me. And yet we got all caught up and it made this one simple command here from James complicated. And one of the best treatments of this subject, Paul says in Ephesians chapter 6, Ephesians 6, you can look at it later, it's verse 10. He says, we're to put on what? The full armor of God so you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may stand your ground and after you've done everything to stand. I don't know about you, but that sounds a lot like resisting the devil to me. Stand your ground. Resist. Let's take a stand against his lies that have permeated this world system. Submit and resist. Secondly, draw near and get clean. Draw near and get clean. Look with me at verse eight. Come near to God, and he will come near to you. Let's just stop there for a moment. Come near to God, and he'll come near to you, because our tendency is to kind of reverse this. We say, well, when I can feel his presence, when I can see God do this or God do that, then I'll start to draw near to God. That isn't how it works, according to James. You see, God has already done everything in the sending of his son for the forgiveness of our sins and to establish a relationship with you and with me. He stands ready to draw near to you. But but let me ask you a question. Do you feel close to God right now? This past week, have you felt close to God? I'm not asking that if you believe in God, but do you feel close to God? Is there, is there some distance, and maybe perhaps a lot of distance, between you and him right now? Before the, the days of um, bucket seats and vehicles, we had what you called bench seats. Remember? We had bench seats. And when Don and I first dated, the car we drove around in, my Dodge Dart, I love that car, it had a bench seat. And as I drove, she sat right close next to me. Made me think of the well-familiar story, likely I've used it before, of a newly married couple and the husband enjoyed having his young bride sit right next to him as he drove because they had this bench seat. For years, this was their common practice. She was, she was right there. He was driving. She'd sit right next to him. As time went on, things changed, and eventually she sat close to the window with all this space between them. And one day as they were driving, the wife complained, you know, remember the days we sat close together as you drove? Why aren't we as close as then? And the husband, driving dryly, replied, well, who moved? (laughs) Who moved? Like the words on the church sign, if you aren't as close to God as you once used to be, guess who moved? Do you feel distance with Christ in your relationship with him right now? Does it feel like he isn't around? If you're not feeling close to the Lord, God didn't move. So the first place to begin then is by looking at where my heart has been lately. What's causing this distance? 
What have you been doing as of late to, to even work on your relationship with God? What do you have in place that draws you near to him? What effort are you making to draw near to God? What disciplines and, and spiritual exercises do you practice that's cultivating the nearness of God and the privacy of your own heart? Because you see, if, if you're bored with God's word in public, chances are you're likely bored with God in, in private in his word. You find it difficult to sing praise to God in public, then likely there isn't a song in your heart in private. If you don't want to be around God's people in public, then likely you struggle with intimacy with God in private. It's serious implications. How are you drawing are you drawing near to the Lord? Or have you kind of just let things slip in your walk with him? Any of us can do it. I've done it. I'm not above it. Have you been drawing closer to the Lord? Maybe you've been drawing closer to the world, and that's the problem. Because friendship with the world is distances us from God. What's the remedy? Remedy, God's grace is closer than you think. Middle of verse 8 now. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. James, you know, he's doing this name-calling thing again. Not only adulterous, he calls them double-minded. Now, the word double-minded literally means two-souled, S-O-U-L-E-D, two-souled. It means that a, that a person's divided between God and the world. We might think of it as a, a double allegiance. Is your allegiance to God being compromised? Wash your hands, he says. Wash your hands, which speaks to the external cleansing that needs to take place. Wash your hands. And I can't help but think of the many times when our kids were younger, how many times we had to tell them to wash their hands. And what's the typical response? They come in the house and playing outside, and we ask, did you wash your hands? They say, I don't need to. <laughs> and aunt and uncle had a missionary family visiting them. And when the missionary children were called in for dinner, the mother said to them, be sure to wash your hands. The little boy scowled at her request, and as he walked off to the bathroom sink to wash his hands under his breath, he is complaining. He's saying, germs in Jesus, germs in Jesus. It's all I ever hear about, and I have never seen either one of them. <laughs> germs in Jesus. <laughs> well, you know, we may not recognize the contamination we carry with us. God sees it. God says, do you need to wash your hands? And we say, I don't need to. God says, yes, you do. Now, the hands represent our actions. You can tell a lot about someone by looking at their hands. I mean, I'm not referring to palm readers. But that soft hands or, or rough hands or calloused fingers or dirt under the fingernails or I don't have any fingernails, you know, they may all speak well of, of what's going on in my life or, or what someone does for a living or some hobby, right? Because what, what, what your hands reveal, they reveal something about you. Same thing spiritually. What do your hands reveal about you? What do your actions say about where your affections are lately? Now, in Isaiah chapter 1, you can turn there if you want to, but you can check it out later. Small groups, community groups will do this. But in Isaiah chapter 1, God says to the people in that day who were going through the motions of sacrifices and offerings, they were doing the rituals, they were checking off the boxes. I mean, they looked spiritual and busy in the house of the Lord. God says to them, Isaiah chapter 1, verse 15, 
He says, when you spread out your hands in prayer, I'll hide my eyes from you. Even if you offer many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. He's saying there's blood on your hands. That there's this distance between God's people and God. They were not being separate from the world, but implicated in the evils of their society. What are they to do? Verse 16, he goes on. Wash and make yourselves clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. In other words, we could put all of that in one word. Repent. 180. Turn around. You're not feeling close to God? I mean, you're checking off the boxes. You're coming to worship. You're doing the outward practices of religion. But there's this distance between you and God. Your hands might be dirty. My hands might be dirty. Wash your hands. Purify your heart by addressing the stuff that's going on inside. God's grace is closer than you think, but it requires we repent in order to benefit from that grace. Draw near, get clean, submit, resist. Thirdly, grieve and change. Grieve and change. James fleshes out some more what it means to get clean. What do we do with that sin? Play games? No, look at verse 9. He says, grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Okay, church, we are to be miserable. No more laughing, no more fun. Is that what James is calling us to? Is the Christian life to be one of gloom and sadness? Are we supposed to walk around depressed and miserable and give the impression to everybody else, you know, the life's just so hard and I'm gloomy and everything else? Kind of like the guy who was standing in line at the checkout counter and he had this long face, stern face, sad face. And this young girl took one look at this man's face and he asked, excuse me, are you a minister? That's not good for someone who does that for a living. He said, no, but I have been sick for three weeks. (laughs) See, I guess there's some resemblance of one who's been sick and a minister or sometimes Christians. No, James isn't talking about that. What is he speaking about here? Appropriateness. Appropriateness. We read it earlier. There's a time to weep. There's a time to laugh. See, it's great to laugh. And if you know me at all, I love to laugh. Even no one else is laughing, I will still laugh. At myself most of the time. I like to have fun. But it's laughter at the right time, at the right things, and it's weeping at the right times, at the right things. And we need to know which is appropriate. I recall the first time that I went to um, the magic of Christmas. They would do it every year back then in the 90s in, in Portland, Maine. And it was put on by the Portland Symphony Orchestra. And every once in a while, and the first time I was there anyway, they, they mixed in a little opera singing. And frankly, that does nothing for me. I hope you still like me after saying that, but it does nothing for me at all. But the other issue that I had with the opera singing is I didn't know when it was done, when I was supposed to clap. Right? I hope that doesn't cause you to think less of me here. But there was a certain protocol about clapping that was very foreign to me. And a couple of times I started to go, and I noticed no one else was clapping. I had to wait. Not now. It would have been very embarrassing if I did clap inappropriately. Well, we are told that, it's to be, that, that what is to be appropriate response to sin. 
And the world has this all upside down. I mean, just consider the frivolous laughter of a sick society that flippantly laughs at sin. And it causes us to get drawn into it, and I find myself laughing at it as well. and going, whoa, this isn't really funny. Church, the world is nothing to laugh at. Then the closer we are to the Lord, the more the things of this world will grieve us. And the people in James' day had, a, had the wrong response. They were celebrating when they should have been weeping. What's the re- appropriate response to sin? Not laughter, not clapping. Grieving, mourning, wailing if necessary. In other words, godly sorrow. Grieve and change. J.I. Packer once said, he said, a sense of defilement before God is not morbid, neurotic, or unhealthy in any way. It's natural, realistic, healthy, and a true perception of our condition. And I had to stop here, I'll tell you, and just ask, am I grieving over my sin? Do I need to? Do I, do I have an inner grief about displeasing the Lord. John Chrysostom was the bishop of Constantinople, one of the greatest preachers in in his day back in the early church. And so powerful was his preaching that he earned the name Christosimus, meaning a a golden-mouthed. Well, anyway, tradition has it that uh, Chrysostom was arrested by the Roman emperor whose wife Eudoxia despised Chrysostom. And the Roman emperor tried to get Chrysostom to renounce his loyalty to Christ, but he was unsuccessful. And so the emperor threw Chrysostom into prison and discussed with his advisors what to be done with that prisoner. Shall I put him in solitary confinement? The emperor asked his advisors. No, 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 one of his advisors replies. He'd be glad to go. He, he longs for the quietness wherein he can delight in the mercies of his God. That won't work. Well, then he shall be executed, said the emperor. No, 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 was the answer from one of his advisors. He'd be glad to die. He declares that in the event of death, he'll be in the presence of his Lord. What shall we do then, the ruler asked. There's only one thing that will give Christosom pain, his advisor said. To cause Christosom to suffer, make him sin. He's afraid of nothing. Except sin. He's afraid of nothing except sin. Has that been said of me? Of you? Do we, do we hate our sin? You know, we say love the sinner and hate their sin. I have a better idea. Love the sinner and hate your sin. Do you grieve over your sin? I mean, when was the last time you wept over your sins. Do you consider your sin against God, uh, that is against God first? Is there a distance between you and God because of unconfessed sin? See, the greater the distance, the greater error increases. God's grace is closer than you think. First John 1, 9, when we confess our sins, we agree with God that it is sin. He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's how close it is to us. That's written to believers. 
Do you need to agree with God over your sin? Don't buy into the lie that says there's no way back from your sin. Listen, no one is so bad that they are beyond the reach of God's grace. No one. I'm still learning that one. It's closer than you think. Verse 10, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. That's how we get there. God longs to lift you up. Not to stay in this place of mourning and weeping and wailing. He longs to lift you, lift you up. He wants to close that gap where there's any distance in your relationship with him. Because the greater the distance, error increases. Probably heard the story. Robert Robinson. At the age of 23, he was saved out of a background that was wild and godless. And after he came to know the Lord, and he was led to put into, into print his testimony, which we know today as, we sang it last week, Come thou fount of every blessing, to my heart to sing thy grace. Streams of mercy never ceasing, call for songs of loudest praise. Teach me some melodious sonnet sung by flaming tongues above. Praise his name, I'm fixed upon it. Name of God's redeeming love. Robert Robinson wrote that. Beautiful words. Sometime after writing that, the writer of that hymn, Robert Robinson, he began to let his relationship with God slip. He, he started to experience this distance from the Lord. An error creeped into his life. He left the claims of Christ in the dust, and he lived like a carnal, godless man for many, many years. And the shorter version of the story was one day he met up with a woman whose face was buried in a book. She didn't know him, nor he her. What are you reading? Robinson asked. Listen to this, the woman answered as she began reading the poem out loud. Come thou fount of every blessing to my heart to sing thy grace. And as she read, Robinson sat quietly just surrounded by guilt. Then the woman got to the stanza. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Stop! Stop, Robinson yelled. I am that poor, unhappy man who composed that verse many years ago, and I'd give a thousand worlds to enjoy the feelings I had back then. The woman reassured him that the streams of mercy mentioned in the song were for him, that there is a way back, because grace is closer than you think. And Robert Robinson turned his wandering heart back to the Lord. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Before we say, not me. You might want to ask, have I been tolerating some compromise in my life? If I let some things slip, because greater the distance, church, error increases. Is it time to just stop any distancing that is occurring in your relationship with the Lord? Let's pray.
God, thank you for the wonderful truth. There is always, always a way back. We don't have to remain in that sin. We can always end our relationship to a particular sin at any point. And sometimes we buy the lie that says, no, I'm too, I'm too far away now. Oh, I did this, I might as well do this, this, and this. That's insanity. And it's unbiblical. So help us, Lord, where we need to step in and address the distancing that might be occurring in our lives, to not be naive to the, one, the, to the truth that, that we have a tendency to wander if we're not careful. We thank you for your grace that pulls us in. We thank you for the promise that as we draw near to you, you will draw near to us. So where we need to do the, the humbling right now, may we do that. And may we come to you with a hunger in our heart for you. Stir that within us, oh God. Not a hunger for the world, but a hunger for you, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.